Uh, we're going to read out of the book of Hebrews together. I mean, not together. You're going to listen. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. This is actually going to conclude uh, our study uh, in this book, the book of Hebrews, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. I hope some of you have too. I've uh, just appreciated uh, the consistent way in which the writer of Hebrews puts Jesus in front of us. Uh, here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he, good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of God. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for this opportunity to worship you, thankful for this opportunity to study, and we would ask you to engage our hearts and our minds, our emotions, our whole person, our whole being, uh, as we reflect together. God, uh, use this time to change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage we read, uh, once again, uh, as is kind of the, the, uh, the main theme in this, in this book, the book of Hebrews, it is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And uh, Hebrews is all about the celebration of faith, the importance of faith, stimulating faith, encouraging faith, strengthening it, and so. 
uh, we've seen that one of the keys to dealing with difficulties in our life is that we be a people of faith, a people trusting in, holding on to God. So as we close out our time in Hebrews, let's dig a little deeper and uh, let's ask some questions. Uh, one, what is faith? Let's get a clearer understanding of what faith exactly is. How does faith work? Here in our passage, I think we see that faith is kind of a multifaceted thing. But before we dive into that, let me just say this. This is for free. It's not even in my notes. Um, and that is this. Every human being is a faith creature. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God uh, it, it, or who you uh, follow in your life or anything of that nature. All human beings operate on the basis of faith. Um, I'm watching a television show. Uh, it's called Lost in Space. Any of you watch that? Yeah, there you go. It's an interesting show and I'm, uh, I'm being entertained by it. But one of the uh, kind of undercurrents, um, you could call it a foundational belief of this whole show uh, is in something you've heard before. It's called multiverse. It's the idea that there are, you know, perhaps even an infinite number of universes. Well, in this show, uh, things have gone wrong on Earth and we need to get off the Earth and colonize uh, another part of our solar system. And so we've sent spaceships off to do that, right? A spaceship and I believe actually multiple ones. And, uh, and they're going to colonize uh, another planet. But, but tragedy happens and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but... Uh, in the process of tragedy, in the process of landing on another planet, they actually come to discover that there's intelligent life elsewhere, uh, but not in our solar system. They, they postulate possibly from one of the multiverses, one of the other solar systems. And another thing that's kind of an underlying premise in this series is just that, you know, uh, science is going to save us. You know, when the planet is attacked and going to slowly be destroyed, the thing to look to that's going to get us off the planet, to get us to where we need to, to help us to live longer, to be healthy, uh, to know the things and do the things we need to do, the thing that's going to save us is science. So multiverse and science. And I would say those are pretty common, uh, pretty widely accepted things in which today most people, many people, put their faith. Now the question is up for debate whether that's a good thing to put your faith in, but I'm just noting that that is a thing in which we put our faith. Now, here in our passage, uh, as I said, we see that faith is a multifaceted thing. But when I say faith, I mean biblical faith. Uh, I'm talking about faith as the Bible presents it, as an entity that the Bible talks about. Uh, faith is, in fact, uh, very much about rational thought. Uh, faith is a, a thoughtful process. Uh, you can't have faith uh, that is not rational or a part of a rational process, uh, not biblical faith. We're going to see that faith is transformative. We're going to see that faith is foundational. And we're going to see that faith is also something that's actually very focused. It's very, very focused. Um, so let's look at these four aspects, okay? If not that, I got nothing. So, you know, enthusiastically say yes. Yeah, we'll look at that with you. Okay, so here's the first one. Faith is more, but not less than rational, Okay. Faith takes thinking, careful thinking. That's certainly implied in verse 6 where it says that to please God, one must believe that he exists, for one thing, but also that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, those who 
pursue him, those who want to know him. In other words, you have to wrestle with a variety of ideas and decide whether you believe them or have faith in them. And of course, that takes thought. That is a careful thought process or should be. It's a rational process. In verses one through three, there's some interesting words used there. In verse one, it says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That word certain is the interesting word to me at least. Certain is a word that means that we validate something through evidence. You check out the evidence, you reason, you think about the evidence and it either validates uh, a belief or it does not. And that's why in some translations, like for example, the old King James version, it actually translates this verse by saying, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Verse 3 says, by faith we understand. That word understand, of course, is another word uh, in the family of words that uh, refer to reasoning and thinking and process, a thought process. You could paraphrase verses 1 through 3 this way, and you wouldn't be too far off. Faith, by reason, perceives that the material world all by itself does not make sense. There must be an unseen supernatural reality who designed and made it all. You could paraphrase those first three verses along those lines. Now, faith arrives at that conclusion through a process that is logical, that is is thoughtful, that is careful. Um, There's a Roman Catholic philosopher that I appreciate. I haven't read, he's he's written a lot. I've, I've read a tiny little bit of what he's written, but he's very interesting. He actually was first a moral philosopher, then he got into political philosophy. And those are the two areas where he's done most of his writing. His name is Alistair McIntyre. Uh, he's, uh, he's very intrigued by the fact that he says every human being uh, has deep-seated ideas about right and wrong or good or bad. Every human being, no, no human being that's ever lived doesn't have a whole lot of ideas about right or wrong or good or bad. And he makes the argument that ideas like that essentially actually require us to believe in God. And the argument, I think, is is, is valid. It's interesting. Uh, You you consider it. (coughs) He says, only faith in God can make sense of our lives in the sense that it makes sense of who we are and how we act and how we think. Uh, He uses this example. He says, imagine you've got a radio. Uh, how can you know if your radio is good or bad? That's the question. He says, you can't really answer that question until you deal with a prior and even more important question, namely, what is the radio supposed to do? That's a question that must be answered. What is it built for? What is the purpose of a radio? You can't say this is not a good radio because it will not open my garage door. You can't say this is not a good radio because it will not pound this nail into this board. That would be absolutely ridiculous. The only way to evaluate a radio, that is whether it's good or whether it's bad, is to evaluate it according to its designed purpose. Does it or does it not receive radio signals and make them audible to me? If it does, then perhaps it's a good radio. If it doesn't, then it's a pretty bad radio. And his point, I think, is a really good one. If I don't know the purpose of something, then I can't really begin to judge whether it's good or whether it's bad. And yet, think about this. Human beings make these judgments or assessments all the time, every day, about almost everything. Do we not? 
Good food, bad food. Good show, bad show. Good entertainment, bad entertainment. Good art, bad art. Good book, bad book. Good job, bad job. And we can just keep going. Good friend, bad friend. How about this one? Good person, bad person. That's an interesting judgment that we make, all of us, all the time. How do you know if a human being is good or bad? How do you know if a human action is good or bad? McIntyre says you can't even begin to answer that question unless you can answer the prior, more important question, namely what are human beings for? What is our purpose? And if this world, he says, the material world is all that there is, period, Uh, spiritual, supernatural things don't exist. There is no God, no human soul, no human spirit. If everything has a purely natural cause, if this unseen world is all there is, then we, he says, are truly purposeless. Purposeless. And that means it's impossible to judge any person or any action, right or wrong, or good or bad. You may feel that violence oppression, racism, the shootings that just constantly keep happening in our schools. You may look at those things and you may say, that's wrong. Well, remember, that is just a feeling. Uh, What is more, uh, it's not rooted or grounded in anything other than your own opinion about that thing or that action. And and yet, says McIntyre, we all have this He calls it unavoidable knowledge. Uh, We all have this undeniable innate awareness that certain actions just are in and of themselves right or they are wrong. And McIntyre loves to point out that only faith in God, a a God who has a certain character, who acts in a certain way, only faith in God makes any sense of those very human ways of thinking. He says, not only can we uh, not make sense of ourselves and the way we think about right and wrong and stuff, he, he adds this other thought. He says, not, not only that, but he said, you can't really make, make sense of things like our concepts of beauty, our concepts of love, our concepts of, of courage or valor or truth. Uh, none of those things make any sense without faith in the kind of God that our Bible describes. It's what the writer of Hebrews is driving at when he says this in verse six, he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, he rewards those who pursue the things that are part of the very character that he possesses and has built into human beings who are made in his image. You see, if you pursue truth and justice, and courage, and good, and love, and sacrificial service, which is really what love is. If you pursue those kinds of things, then God will reward you because in essence, you are pursuing God. All those things understand, he says, only make sense against the belief that there is a God who embodies all of those things, and of course, much more. Uh, Without that faith, 
we become what Francis Crick said we were. This is, of course, uh, pastors love to quote this. I've quoted it before, too, if I'm being honest. Francis Crick was one of the molecular biologists who discovered the structure of the DNA molecule. I'm sure you've heard his name. Wrote a book called Astonishing Hypothesis, and, and he famously wrote these words. He wrote these words about you, by the way. Uh, he said, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are all, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but a pack of neurons, end quote, which is a fairly meaningless, purposeless thing to be, a pack of neurons. And it's interesting, I think, that not one of us really thinks that way about ourselves or the world in which we inhabit. Not one of us. Not even Francis Crick. I mean, you, you see, he actually believes that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, not just uh, responses of our neurons. After all, he did write a book. And I bet he would have been upset uh, if you had gone somehow to the bookstore in our local, all the bookstores in our local areas and just stolen his books off the shelf and not paid for them. I bet he would consider that wrong if you did that. Uh, even though it's nothing more than the firing of neurons. You see, he can't live with his own theory, his own understanding of reality. We all do think there is a right and there is a wrong. We just all do. That we all do think that certain things are beautiful, certain things are lovely, and certain things are not. We all believe that love is better than hate. Uh, they aren't both equally valid chemical reactions. That kind of thinking, friends, is irrational. It's not really thoughtful. It's not how human beings operate. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's a packed statement, friends. That's a, that is a declaration that the material world is not all there is. You know, a basic premise of uh, materialism or the, the notion that there is nothing supernatural, um, nothing like God uh, exists, is the, the premise that there, all there is is we're looking at it. I'm standing on it. It's matter. Matter has always existed. Well, this, this passage tells us no matter has not always existed. It, it actually says what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It's saying that God spoke into existence Things that prior to that did not exist. They have their origin in a thinking, caring, good, loving, sacrificial God. Now, you see, uh, faith enables us, I would say, I would argue, uh, faith enables us to think clearly, to think rationally to think correctly about ourselves and the world in which we live. Without faith in God, I would say, God of the Bible, we can't uh, adequately explain how it is we think, how it is we function, why it is we structure societies the way we do. All of those kinds of things, I would say, only make sense in light of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation, and the doctrine of man, man being a creature created 
in the image of God. Uh, Faith in God, the God of the Bible, makes sense of us. It makes sense of our world. So the first aspect of biblical faith is that it is rational, not irrational. It's the only thing making sense of the world in which we actually live. It's the only thing that makes sense to me of me. You take God out of the picture and I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I guess my happiness is the chief end of man, you see. Now, that's not all faith is. A second aspect of faith uh, is that it is transformative. Um, In verses 7 and 8 of the passage we just read, it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Uh, It says in verse eight, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And then we're told about others. We're told about Abel and we're told about Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and, and even others. All of these individuals operated, we are told, by faith. And what's interesting is that in this context of their faith, what we see again and again and again and again is God calling them to something. God challenges them to action. Uh, He challenges the idols, the things in their life upon which they were building uh, their lives. He challenges those very things. And he does this so much so that every one of these individuals listed in, in chapter 11 found themselves at certain points in time actually wrestling with God, wrestling with Almighty God. So much so they're asking him questions. Uh, they express their hurt, their concern, their fears. Yeah, but God, they, they have to make difficult decisions sometimes without all the information they would actually like to have. And they do all of this because of their faith in God. And the point is, faith is not just theoretical speculation. Faith is always something that is very personal. Uh, And because of that, faith changes us. Uh, It makes sense of our lives, yes, but if we're being honest, we have to also admit it also greatly complicates our lives. I suddenly become accountable to someone fully, ultimately, completely accountable to them. And that changes the landscape of my life. Uh, This is true of the people we read about. Take Moses. He is a prince in Egypt. Things were, we assume, fairly good for Moses. He's living in the Pharaoh's family, right? But then something begins to happen to him. Something begins to stir and disturb him. We're not told actually how this happens, but somehow as an adult, (coughs) Moses starts to identify with Hebrew slaves. Uh, He resents how the Egyptians are treating, it says, his people. It's an interesting phrase, his people. One day it says uh, in in Exodus 2.11, an Egyptian, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And as you know, you know the story, he takes matters into his own hand. He actually kills that Egyptian. That uh, murder is found out and suddenly he is on the run to a place called Midian where he spends 40 years. The point is this, his faith changes him. Um, The same thing with Abraham. 
Abraham is living in a city called Haran. He's part of a prominent family of means, or so it seems. Uh, the land apparently is uh, uh, fertile, or he's grazing his cattle on it. We're not sure just how he made a living, although we know later on he had a lot of cattle. His life seems good. He seems safe. He seems secure. Uh, it seems he's a significant citizen, perhaps in that town, in that city in which he lives. And then God comes into his life and basically takes all of that and turns it upside down. Next thing you know, he's running off to Canaan. Next thing you know, he's living in a tent. The next thing you know, he's fighting battles. The next thing you know, he's having a son at the age of 100. Tell me that's not a problem. It's exciting. It's challenging. But it's also nothing he asked for. Have you, have you ever noticed we do much of life uh, just because we have to do it? Uh, we go through a lot of our lives, almost on remote uh, a little bit. You know what I mean? As we're growing up, you know, we play, we interact, then we go to school. Eventually we graduate from school. When we graduate from school, college, whatever it is, we then look for a job because we want to support ourselves. We might uh, look to meet someone, maybe marry them, maybe start a family. Uh, then we want to provide for that family, so we want to improve our, our uh, status financially and so and somewhere in the mix of all that and for for all of us it can be in different places but somewhere in the mix of all that God shows up uh, and we and we find ourselves putting our faith in him and and man then then a different journey begins suddenly because of God uh, I'm supposed to love my neighbor that's not convenient sorry it gets worse I'm supposed to love my enemies. That's a lot more inconvenient. I'm supposed to use the talents, the abilities, and the skills that he's put in me, not just for me, but for people around me. Uh, I'm supposed to sacrificially love my spouse when he or she doesn't deserve it. I'm supposed to love my friends similarly, sacrificially. I I'm supposed to care for coworkers People who can sometimes be real annoying. People who can not get the job done the way they should be getting the job done. I, I'm supposed to figure out, because of this faith that I now have, how to love that person. I'm supposed to work with integrity and, and honesty and not do just what suits me, myself. There's so many implications to this thing called faith. You see, faith is way, way more than just giving some kind of rational assent to a certain set of propositions about God. It's actually, faith is actually predicated on a personal encounter with God. Genuine faith will always uh, bring the call of God on your life. It will mean God is going to get right up in your business. That's the problem of faith. And if your faith is not that, well, then maybe your faith is not real. Noah believed in God. He knew God existed, but then his faith got real personal. God shows up one day and speaks to him. And the next thing you know, he's building a big, big, big boat in his backyard. And as far as we know, there was no water nearby. Uh, he starts gathering animals and food to fill that boat. And I'm sure the community got a big hoot out of this. 
uh, just watching this madman and his family build this structure that what possible purpose could this serve? Uh, There was Abraham who encounters God in Haran. He believes in God, has faith in God. Next thing you know, God is is confronting him and saying, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. Moses believed in God, but his personal faith resulted in his identifying more with Hebrew slaves than with Egyptian aristocracy. And what we see in all of these instances is that when belief becomes personal and takes root deep, deep down, it is always also transformational. Having faith in God is more than just good moral philosophy. It's personally invasive. It's disruptive. It will take you in directions and down paths you never thought you would be going on or traveling on. God comes into our lives to actually, you see, move us from being one kind of person to being another kind of person. And God will not be kept at a distance not forever. When we put our faith in him, we are inviting. We are asking. We are giving him license to lead. And believe me, he will, because that's who he is. That's what he does. He will call you out of Haran, He will call you out of Midian and back to Egypt to do something there that needs to be done. He will say to you, I want something more, not from you, but for you. I want you to become who I mean for you to be. Always, you see, when faith becomes personal, it's disruptive. When faith becomes personal, you begin to ask questions. Like, what am I doing with my life? What are my values? What are my priorities? What is my purpose? Why am I going to this school? What am I going to do with this education? Uh, Why am I earning money? How am I going to use this money? What am I giving my life to? All of these questions, when answered in light of personal faith in Almighty God, are dangerous questions. They are questions that will lead to change in your life. This is just what real faith does. And if your faith in God is not transforming you that way, then you need to ask whether your faith is real and personal and biblical faith. You with me so far? So biblical faith is rational. And biblical faith is transformative. A third thing that biblical faith is, it is absolutely foundational. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So when Abraham believed God, that belief, that faith became foundational to all of his decision making. Uh, It meant that immediately his life became way more complicated. God says, get up, Abraham, and go. And Abraham, I am sure, wondered where, where am I going? Uh, Why am I going? What does this mean? God doesn't really tell him. God just says, I've got a land I'm going to give you. I'll let you know when you get there, just head south. Abraham, I'm sure, wanted a lot more 
information. Have you ever wanted a lot more information? Sure you have. We almost always do. When he gets to Canaan, it's so interesting to me that God says, this is it. This is the land I'm going to give you. Take a survey. Look around. This is yours. It's all yours. But Abraham looks around. He says, yeah, but it's also all owned. It's all occupied. It's not mine. It's not what you said, God. You know, it's different than I pictured it would be. Turns out he wanders in that land for the rest of his life. He never actually possessed it. Only his ancestors do. Now, later, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, that is great. I need an heir. I need a son. Uh, But how is this going to happen? I'm 99 years old. My wife is 90. And God just says, trust me. And it will happen. And as you know, it did. Isaac is born. And then the day comes when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. And sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now understand, a couple things going on here. That wasn't a new concept. In the cultures there in which Abraham was moving, there was a practice among many, if not most of the people, that when you wanted to get a God's attention big time, when you needed the help of a God in a big way, you needed to make a sacrifice that mattered. And the most significant sacrifice you could offer, it was generally understood, was to offer a family member. So Abraham has watched others do this kind of thing. It's just that in all of his interactions with his God, nothing about his God has ever suggested that something like that would be remotely okay. You see, his God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. His God is a good God. His God is a truth-telling God. Uh, His God has demonstrated faithfulness and love to him time and time again. And now this? So you have to appreciate how confusing this had to have been to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go down to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about. So get this too. God is guiding this trip. This is very significant. God is guiding this trip to a very specific mountain, to a very specific location. And uh, Abraham has to be thinking all along the way, Lord, I don't get this. Lord, I, I don't understand. Why, Lord? Why this? This doesn't make any sense. Isaac is the son you promised me, God. Isaac is the one you said would be my heir. God, I don't understand. But he keep, kept taking step after step after step in exactly the direction that God wanted him to go. Now, Abraham has faith and so he obeys. And we read that by faith, when God tested him, Uh, he, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And you know the story. He's about to strike Isaac, his son, with a knife. He's about to, to kill him. And it says, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And then it says, Abraham reasoned. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm sure he had several days. He's reasoning, he's reasoning. He's thinking about this God that he served, this, what this God is like and, and what this God, how faithful and how providing and, and so on. He has been every step of the way through his life. Abraham reasoned, and here's what he reasoned, that God could raise the dead. 
And then the writer of Hebrews gives us his parenthetical thought. He says, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Because you know the story? Remember, God has been leading every step of the way for Abraham. Leads him to that mountain, leads him to that exact location on that mountain. And it just so happens. There's a ram right over here. Caught in a thicket. And with God, when God halts Abraham's hand from killing his son Isaac, God makes a substitutionary sacrifice available in that very instance. And God knew that was exactly what he was going to do right from the beginning. And in the process of all that confusion and all that turmoil and all that heartache, one of the things God was building into Abraham was faith, was trust was obedience. So Abraham's faith had become foundational, you see, to everything he did, even to the point when God had clearly, and I, I stress that, God had clearly told him to do this. It wasn't something he ate. Uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, God telling him to do something. Yes, it, it was something totally confusing, seemingly out of character, but, but he trusted, he took a step after step, and his God again proved to be faithful, proved to provide. Abraham's faith had become foundational to everything he did. He believed God's promises, so he moved his family to, uh, to Canaan. He dwelt in the land as an alien and a stranger, we're told. He trusted God to give him a son. God gave him a son, an heir. And he was even prepared to sacrifice that son if God asked him to. Abraham had come to see, and here's the big point, I think. Abraham had come to see that this world that he was living in, without faith, without trusting God, uh, it really had no uh, solid foundation whatsoever. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. You see the point? The point is, the point is that this world cannot supply what we all long for and need. And what we all long for and need is home. We all long for and need the connection with our maker that we were designed to have. We all long for and need this, this city that's described that is unshakable, that is never changing, that is always true, always good, always just, you see. Full of beauty, full of unshakable truth, full of righteousness, full of love. We long for that place. You know, in this world, our homes, our cities, the places where we live and move, they're always changing. They're never the same. Things are always coming apart. Things are always breaking. Things are always wearing out and winding down. Look at me. Think about this. Just about everything we hold dear is just constantly changing, like water running through our hands. Our families, they're constantly changing. Our, our kids are getting older. Sometimes they get to a certain age, they, they move out. Sometimes they move out. And sometimes they move away. And sometimes they get married, and that changes dynamics. And, and on and on and on it goes. And then sometimes they die. And so do we. Our health, our looks, they decline. They diminish, and then we die. Even what we think we know, uh, you know, th those things change 
as well. They morph, they vanish. I read a little article that was making the point that many of our ancestors' greatest intellectual, scientific, and philosophical ideas of the past couple hundred years are today thought to be silly, laughable, a joke, embarrassing, right? And this article was saying that our great-great-grandchildren will look at much of what we think our intellectual property is and much of what we think we know, much of what we think is absolutely certain today, and they will consider it silly, laughable, embarrassing, a joke. We live in a city that's constantly changing. So you see, what does God do with us? Again and again, he presents us with situations. I call it life. He presents us with life to challenge our foundations. Because here's, we have this sinful bent in us that wants to build our own foundations. Have anything other than God be our foundation. And God will challenge that and challenge that and challenge that and thank him always that he does. Over and over again. God will bring us to a crisis or a crossroad of sorts where to obey him means that we have to let go of something, something that we have been building our lives upon. Something from which you've, you've been getting your significance or your identity or your security, if you will, a false foundation. That's what God was doing with Abraham. That's what God was doing with Isaac. We all sinfully try to build our lives on false foundations, things that were never, ever meant to support something as precious as a life. Things like economic safety or economic security, things like our intelligence, our looks, our family, our religion, the list is long of the things we try to build our lives upon. And always because God loves us. Because God loves us, he is calling us out of those places. He says, leave that behind. Come follow me. Leave your false foundation. Leave your idols behind. That stuff is never going to support you. Put your faith in something solid, something that will not change, something that cannot erode. You know, Jesus, when he was finishing the greatest sermon ever given, he said these words, he said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Friends, Let's be clear. Jesus, Jesus is that rock. That is Jesus' claim. To be the one foundation upon which we should build our lives. And that brings us to a quick final point. For your faith to be rational, for your faith to be transformational, for it to be foundational, it must be focused focused on this one person, this one thing, Jesus and Jesus alone. That's exactly where the writer of Hebrews takes us. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he's listed all of them, and we've seen that by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, they did these things. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
That last little phrase, it could preach a sermon on that. The race marked out for us. Oh, you mean there's something important, something that matters, uh, something purposeful that you've marked out for me? Yes, the answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. That's who our God is. He doesn't do anything purposelessly. The writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, friends, we live on this little ball of rock that we call earth. And life here, as we note over and over and over, can be hard, it can be difficult, it can be confusing, it can be challenging. It was for Jesus, so it will be for us. And unless Jesus returns first, our lives will all end in a place called death. That's where we're all going, death. And when we die, we will meet Jesus eye to eye, face to face, the Bible says. And if we have faith in him, he will welcome us into his family as a, as a brother, as a sister related to him. But if we refuse to believe in him, if we refuse to put our faith in him, and instead we put our faith in anyone or anything else, the Bible says very clearly he will send us away to everlasting punishment for our sins and separation from him for all eternity. Now, here's the thing. He graciously warns us about this. In many cases, over and over, and he's graciously warning us about this right now. And here's the deal. Either you are connected to Almighty God by faith in Jesus, and therefore, everything is secure, no matter how chaotic your, your, your life might look right now. Everything is secure because of who you're connected to. Or you are not connected to God by faith in Jesus. And nothing is secure. No, no matter how orderly your life might look on the outside. Do you see that God, because he is gracious... God, because he is merciful, wants to shake your life and my life right down to its foundation so that we will build our lives on nothing less than Jesus. The one and only thing that will support you. Friends, that's what this meal is about. Uh, Jesus has given us a meal that focuses us, our attention, our hearts, our minds on him. We're, we're told that he gave us this meal to remind us of what he had done. And he tells us to keep observing and partaking of this meal until he returns and wraps it all up. In the upper room with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Here is our spiritual nourishment. 
Here is the foundation that we absolutely desperately need. And the only way to appropriately partake of this meal is by faith. And so parents, if you have children who are going to partake, you need to know that they know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we we come by faith. It's it's the only way to come. If you come to this meal saying, God, you need me. Uh, God, you know, I've been good enough, haven't I? That's the wrong question. The answer is no. No, you haven't, just to be clear. Uh, What is required is to come with our sins by faith to him, confessing them, giving them to him, and receiving the forgiveness he gives us. And we invite you to this table, and we invite you to partake if you come by faith, if you come that way. Uh, Let me pray, and as I pray, um, I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us if you would come forward as I pray. And uh, then when it is time, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sacrament, this meal that communicates to us the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this meal that also reminds us of his life, his death, his resurrection, that reminds us that he's coming again, that reminds us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is the one foundation upon whom we can build, the one in whom we can believe, the one who will give us everything we need for life for eternal life. Father, may we come in faith. Jesus, you're the author. You're the perfecter of our faith. Would you increase our faith where it is small? We thank you for this meal and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.